Well, good morning, friends. Welcome to church this morning. It's great to see all your smiling faces and all of those who are joining us at home on YouTube. Um, I also want to say, Namasha, thank you for reading that passage. Uh, we met on Thursday night at Kelvin's place, and you shared your testimony, and it was so good to hear the story of you growing up in Sri Lanka in a Christian home, but then coming to personally know the Lord Jesus Christ later in life, and about how God providentially and sovereignly worked your path and brought you to you and cared for you. It was great hearing your personal testimony. You know, friends, personal testimony is so valuable. Because we can stand up here and preach God's word, but you guys kind of look at us and you say, yeah, yeah, but that's RD, that's Brock, that's what they do. But when you hear someone share their personal testimony, you perhaps think, wow, they're normal. And if God can work in their life, maybe he works in mine. So maybe today, after the service, when you're hanging around for a coffee and a little cupcake or something, instead of talking about the weather or the Blue Jays, share your testimony with one another. Encourage one another with how the gospel and the Lord has been at work in your life. Okay, none of that was part of the sermon. That was for free. Open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. That's our passage this morning. Page 970 in your pew Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We find ourselves in the tail end of this letter, and this entire section is cautionary and instructive for the Christian life. We are in the middle of the thick of Paul's defense of his ministry in Corinth. There have been accusations brought against Paul in his absence, things that he has had to address and He even is willing to address them on terms that he wished he didn't have to. We heard that over the last couple of weeks. He begins this passage by saying, I must go on boasting. He's defending his ministry. Now you might read that with 21st century sensibilities and say, that's so egocentric of Paul, right? Is he some kind of egomaniac? He has to go on boasting? No, that's right. Because Paul's not ultimately and finally defending himself, he's building a defense for his ministry because what he's defending is the ministry of the gospel message that he brought. So Paul defends his ministry because other gospels, if you will, have crept into the church in Corinth in Paul's absence. There have been new leaders who have come along and they've tried to preach a message that's different than the message that Paul brought about placing your hope and faith and trust in something other than Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. And so Paul has to do this. Well, that tragically still happens today. Other gospels creep into the church, but that's a sermon for another day. Paul is building his case for his own legitimacy and for the legitimacy of his message And that is the focal point of his boasting. It would seem from listening to this side of the letter of 2 Corinthians that um, these super apostles, these opponents of Paul who have crept into the church in Paul's absence, they try to gain traction with the church in Corinth and for their false message by boasting in their strength, by boasting in their accomplishments by boasting in their eloquence or in having more degrees than a thermometer. Fill in the blanks, right? That's what these guys are doing to try to bolster their message. 
And so Paul, over the last couple of chapters, has responded with boasting of his own. But boasting in unexpected ways. Brock ably led us through chapter 11 last week and Dan the week before that. And in those passages, we saw that Paul boasted in the opposite things to the super apostles. Did you notice that? Paul boasted in hardships that he had endured. He boasted in weakness. He boasted in suffering. Well, Christian friend, you and I know that it's true. If you want to see the gospel on display in my life, don't look at me in my moments of strength. Don't look at me in those shining mountaintop moments. Look at me in my moments of weakness. Look at me in my moments of hardship and suffering and even failure because it's in those moments that you will not make the mistake. You will not look and say, gosh, that RD, does he ever have all of his stuff together? He's so smart and so good. You're going to look at it and see, RD is a sinner. He's broken. He's hopeless on his own. But behold the grace of God. And so Paul rejects the entire framework of boasting in his own strength. He boasts instead in the very weaknesses that his opponents in Corinth try to use to undermine him. For the Christian person, Paul's setting out this model and this paradigm that our hardships never lead to despair, but rather to deliverance. Did you notice last week when Brock was preaching chapter 11 that Paul was listing off all the things that he was boasting in. In fact, if you have your Bibles open, take a look at it quickly. Chapter 11, he's moving through all of his hardships and all of his sufferings and all of his weaknesses. It's following a logical flow. And then there are these two verses, verse 32 and verse 33, that seem to be like random squirrel moments. You're like, squirrel, what's going on here? Why is Paul all of a sudden talking about being delivered in a basket? Paul wants you to see that the legitimacy of a Christian life and the message that it bears fruit, that it bears witness to, happens in a cross-shaped life that's, lead, that, that's lived around suffering and hardship and despair. But it's hardship and despair, it's hardship and difficulty that never leads to despair, but rather leads to deliverance. And for Paul, that deliverance took the shape of a basket. But for you and for me, it takes the shape of an empty tomb. So we boast in hardship and difficulty, and suffering. The cautionary instruction that comes out of the, the, the defense so far is that we as Christians ought to embrace our suffering for the gospel and for the Lord. Listen, it's not a popular message, but it's true. External hardships, maltreatment, malevolence, they are all biblically normal for the Christian man or woman. In fact, it goes even further than that. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, Woe to you if all men speak well of you. He says, For their fathers used to speak well of the false prophets. Paul 
appeals to the hardships and the sufferings and the persecution and the difficulty that he's faced as the legitimacy for his Christian walk and message. They are the evidence that he's on the right track, and we should expect the same. Your gospel life and proclamation will set you at odds with the world around you. Let me say it a different way. Living a gospel-shaped life, proclaiming the gospel with all of its ethical and moral implications, will mean that you do not fit easily into secular categories. You're going to be persecuted. Let's say it another way, maybe even more pointed. If you find that you fit easily and perfectly into any political, secular category or group or party, you've probably compromised your gospel witness. If you find that you swim too easily in the sea of secularism and you're warmly welcomed by non-believers, they're never offended by your life or your proclamation, Well, Jesus would say that maybe you are a false prophet. Paul's life bear witnesses to the fact that the gospel will bring hardship and challenge and suffering and difficulty. In fact, it's the evidence that you're probably on the right track. So with that in mind, let's jump quickly into 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Two cautionary instructions. The first one, verses 1 to 6. In verses 1 to 6, Paul's describing this ecstatic experience, this heavenly spiritual experience that has happened to a man. Now, it's most likely, given the irony that Paul is using here in boasting, that Paul's being coy, and this man that he's referring to is most likely himself. When he says, I knew of a man who was carried up into the third heaven, you may wonder what's going on. Well, in the Greco-Roman world, it was clearly understood that the first heaven was sort of this space, this air that we breathe. The second heaven is the dwelling place of the stars. And then the third heaven is the eternal paradise. So when Paul's talking in verses 1 to 6 about this ecstatic spiritual experience, He's most likely talking about a time when he himself was carried up, either in body or not, he's not sure, into eternal paradise and glory. And yet he says, I'm not going to boast in that. He says, I'm going to pull back from that. And in doing so, Paul does the exact opposite to what most of us as Christians do today. Let me tell you what I mean. We as Christians are only too quick to boast in our super spiritual ecstatic experiences. We wear them like trophies and cred. If you boast enough in your spiritual experiences and if your ecstatic experiences are wild enough, maybe you'll even get a publishing deal with a publishing company. Or maybe you'll get invited on a speaking tour because people want to hear about that. But Paul refuses that. Why does he refuse it? Look at verse 6. He says, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. 
For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it. I won't boast in those things. Here's why. So that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Okay, here's the first cautionary instruction. Paul says, I'm not going to boast in these spiritually ecstatic experiences. I don't want people to think more of me than my day-to-day words and life and deeds deserve. Now you may look at that and say, well, I don't know, R.D., in today's world, in today's church, you know, appealing to spiritually ecstatic experience is not the prevalent or dominant problem. Maybe that's true, but the principle still applies. If you're a Christian man or woman here this morning, would you truly say with Paul that you don't want others to more highly esteem you than what you truly deserve? Would you say that? You know, I think this is one of the most destructive elements of social media. If you have social media accounts, you see it all the time that people carefully craft and curate their posts in such a way that it increases their esteem publicly. Okay, it takes the shape of humble brags. It, it takes the shape of people trying to capitalize on unearned virtue. Because they want people to think more highly of them than what they actually deserve. This is garnering social currency by signaling virtue without actually doing anything about it. Okay, let, let me give you an example. Perhaps with the best of intent, a lot of people, even Christians, posted Ukraine flags to their social media accounts over the last couple of months. Or posted BLM slogans, you know? Or posted get vaccinated slogans, or whatever the case may be. But while posting those things on their social media, they did precisely nothing to help those causes. See, that's the opposite of what Paul's doing. And therein lies the caution. Paul is warning against empty tokenism to try to up your esteem, to try to capitalize on undeserved, unearned virtue. And he says, I'm not going to boast in any of those things. I just want people to take me for what I say and what I do. That's what he says in verse 6. I was thinking about other examples of this and how that could work. Well, I'm not going to use any names because I don't want to embarrass anyone, but there are a handful of people in our church. They are mostly women, and you know who you are, who every week buy groceries, become aware of who in our church is in need for different reasons, prepare meals, and deliver those meals to those people in need without anyone ever knowing. Do you know that happens all the time? 
Well, if they were to do what Paul is cautioning against, they wouldn't actually invest in knowing who needs meals. They wouldn't invest in actually buying the groceries, actually preparing the meals and actually delivering them. They would just take the meals that they have, take pictures of them and post them on social media without ever feeding anyone. That's trying to capitalize on unearned, undeserved virtue. Trying to be held in higher esteem than what your words and actions would warrant. Paul's saying, no, I won't do it. I'm not going to boast in those empty things. I want to be taken at face value. Well, that's the first caution. There's another caution that comes out of this first issue as well, before we get on to the second caution. Paul's saying, you know, don't, don't try to capitalize on unearned virtue. Don't, don't cling to stuff that's empty and hollow and try to up your cred. Okay, that's the first thing he's saying. Second thing I think that we can pull out of this is a reminder that overly large churches are not biblically normal and probably not healthy. Let me tell you what I mean. I do think churches need to be of a certain size so that they can have the collective resources to have impact and do the things that they need to do. But there lies a tipping point where churches grow beyond what is actually biblically healthy. And here's why. The church only functions properly when to some extent you know the life of the people that are leading. If a church grows beyond a certain size and your pastor becomes some sort of disconnected celebrity and you don't know him to any extent, he could never say along with Paul, I don't want to boast in these empty things. I just want you guys to know me as I truly am. And a church is too big, you wouldn't know me at all. Right? Another caution that lies in this. But I think what's behind this is simple and clear. We all have this desire to be recognized for virtue. And, and that manifests in these unhealthy ways with, we were talking about trying to cling to external un, unearned virtue. And the problem with that is that it's a counterfeit virtue. Other people know it's not true of you, and you know that it's true, not true of yourself, and so it doesn't satisfy the worst part about it is that that unearned counterfeit virtue can inoculate you against the virtue that was purchased for you by the shed blood of Jesus. And Paul rejects any boasting in anything but that. So we can either be like the super apostles who boast in this puffed up braggadocious claim or we can be like Paul who boasts in a simple way of Christian life that points to the virtue that was earned by Jesus and credited to his account. Paul knew that to boast in anything about himself 
would take the spotlight off of Jesus. And so we need to be like Paul. We need to refuse the temptation to be seen as more than we are and be content with being who we are and being known for who we are. Sinners saved by the grace of God. Reminding ourselves and others that the most important thing about us is not what we do, but what God has done for us in Jesus. The most important thing about us is not our spiritual ecstatic experiences or our Christian pedigree. The most important thing about us is that God in Jesus paid the price for the ransom to purchase us back and to pay for our sin. Boast in that. That's verses 1 to 6. Verses 7 to 10. This is the second cautionary instruction contained in this passage. On the the one hand, Paul said, don't seek elevated status that's beyond who you truly are in Christ. That's the first thing. The second thing that Paul's saying is, embrace your weakness. Now, this is a countercultural message in Northeast Burlington, to be sure. We live in a society full of self made men and women who worship their creator themselves. Many people in our society here and in our church are strong and capable. They demonstrate traits of resilience and conscientiousness, they're hard working. Through their fortitude and their determination, they've been able to chart a course that is good for them, good for their family, and good for their community. They are strong by all appearances. There's something to be said for that. But if you've lived long enough, you'll know that no matter how strong you are, no matter how resilient, how conscientious, how hardworking, no matter how highly you rate on all those scales. Somehow, and in some way, you will meet your Waterloo. At some point in your life and in some way, you will come against something that is stronger than you and you will be made to feel weak. Now, it comes to us in different forms and in different moments. If you're a person who defines your strength by your wealth, by your investment portfolio, maybe that moment will come to you in the form of a stock market correction. Perhaps that moment comes to you daily in the form of difficulty in your marriage, reminds you of your weakness, or children that break your heart. Or maybe you're reminded of your frailty and your weakness when you get a bad diagnosis for your health. Well, to Paul, it came in the form of what he calls a thorn in the flesh. Do you see that? Chapter 7, verse 7. I think it's providential that Paul doesn't tell us specifically what was his thorn in the flesh. Have you ever thought about that? You know, if Paul had told us exactly what it was, whether it was a physical ailment or something, then we could have only ever applied it to that thing. But because it's left vague, we can apply this principle to anything in our life that feels like a thorn. 
Look at verse 7. Paul recognizes that this very weakness that his Corinthian opponents are trying to use to discredit him, it's not only something that he's familiar with, he knows it's true, but he sees that it serves a purpose. Look at verse 7. He says, To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Paul recognized that this weakness that he struggled with served a purpose. He said, you know, God has entrusted such great revelation to me that if I didn't have something that reminded me of my weakness, I might be puffed up and given to conceit. Serves a purpose. What's your thorn in the flesh? What's your area of weakness? Can you see that maybe it serves a purpose from God? Well, in verse 7, Paul also tells us that he recognizes that there are two things that are simultaneously true that seem opposite. Paul recognizes that this thorn in the flesh, this weakness, was both from God, serving God's purpose, but also a messenger of Satan. I'm not going to take too much time to unpack that, but let me just say, Christian man or woman, the hardship and suffering in your life, the thing that brings you face-to-face with your weakness, can be both. That God can redeem and use the worst that the accuser has to offer. That's, That's the entire account of Job, right? God says to Satan that he may test and try Job with weakness and hardship up to a certain point. And so those hardships came to Job both as messengers of Satan but also permitted by the hand of God to serve a purpose. The same is true for you. Well, that's what we see in Genesis chapter 50 in the life of Joseph. At the end of Joseph's life, when his brothers stand before him, he says with confidence to them, these two things. That which you intended for evil, God intended for good and for the saving of many souls. So this is another thing that I want you to take away as you reflect on your own thorn in the flesh and your own weakness. It may be true that it's a hardship that is a messenger of Satan but it's never beyond the scope of God's good purpose and plan for you. He's using it. So what did Paul do? Look at verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So what do you do when you're faced with your thorn in the flesh? Well, you recognize that it's both from Satan and used by God. But the second thing that you do is what Paul did. You pray. You ask God to take it away, you plead with him that in some way he might deliver you from it or take it away from you, whatever the case may be. And he might. Sometimes he does. But sometimes he doesn't. What do you do when he doesn't? Verse 9. But he said to me, 
My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So if you find yourself this morning aware of the thorn in your flesh, recognize that no matter how evil it may be, God is still at work in and through it, working out his good purpose. Pray. Ask God to take it away. He might. He might not. And if he doesn't, don't waste a moment of the weakness. Don't waste a moment of the suffering. Allow it to strip you of your delusion of strength and self-control and press you into a grace that you could never have known apart from that hardship or difficulty. Friends, it's only in those moments when you feel like you have nothing but the grace of God that you discover that the grace of God is all you need. It's sufficient. When you come to terms with your own weakness, that you will feel and know and show that it was never about me, it was always about him. It's in those moments that you will come to trust him more and more. That's why Paul finishes this thought in verse 10 with confidence. He says, it's for the sake of Christ. See that? This thorn in my flesh, it's a messenger from Satan, but God has a good purpose. I prayed and asked God to take it away. God said no, because I want you to know that my grace is sufficient. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, so I'm going to boast in that. For the sake of Christ then. I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Boast in that. I want to conclude just bringing out one nuance that's lost in the English translation. Okay? Allow me to just geek out in the original languages for a moment. Would you do that? So in English, it's translated as a thorn in the flesh. But the Greek is literally a stake through the flesh. Well, I think on the first hand, this probably means Paul is saying, I'm not going to boast in these Uh, spiritual, ethereal, otherworldly experiences. My Christianity is one that remains staked through my flesh firmly to the ground, okay? So what Paul is advocating here is a boasting in meat and potatoes, day-to-day, George Bailey, it's a wonderful life Christianity. Not fireworks, not big explosions, just day-to-day trusting in Jesus, staked to the ground. But you could scarcely hear the words, a stake through my flesh, without immediately thinking of the deeper allegorical truth. Paul is saying, 
this weakness, this besetting suffering is like a stake that pierces my flesh because it daily reminds me there is one who was pierced for my transgressions, who was bruised for my iniquity. The chastisement that brought me peace was borne by him. And by his stripes, I'm healed. So we boast in the stake that's through our flesh and in our weakness. Because it reminds us and it shows others Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we consider these matters, I pray that we would take these cautionary instructions to heart. Pray that we would actively reject any attempts to garner praise that we do not deserve. That we would only ever present ourselves in sinners who, as sinners who have been saved by a good, loving God. I pray also, Lord, that you would help us to not push away or avoid or deal lightly with our own weakness or deny it or waste it, but that we would allow those weaknesses to work your good purpose, to show us the strength and sufficiency of your grace and to remind us of the cross. We pray this to the glory of your name. Amen.